Uh, thank you uh, so much, everyone, for joining us on this slightly abridged um, Sunday afternoon chat. I, um, I'm presenting at a conference on Tuesday and going down to set up on Monday and leaving tonight. So, of course, I need the 19 hours, and uh, I need to bring some chocolates and some flowers uh, for the guards because uh, I imagine with the security guards there's usually a high degree of, uh, of intimacy uh, so I just, you know, I like to feel that it's a little bit more romantic than it often turns out to be. So uh, I like to bring a card, some flowers, chocolates, and so on, get to know the person a little bit. And uh, uh, that's usually a little bit of lubricant also, also helps usually when going through this process. So I actually have to reapply for my, uh, I have to get a passport now in Canada. I have an EEC passport, and then I got a landed immigrants card, and then I got a Canadian citizenship card, and now I have to go and get a um, a passport because the world leaders are so interested in keeping free people free that they keep imposing more and more restrictions upon travel and the need for uh, papers and so on, but uh, that's neither here nor there. So it'll be a little bit of a short uh, chat uh, today, which I don't think will be the end of the world. I uh, uh, I spent uh, uh, it was about an hour and ten minutes on a, um, a speech that I gave at the Libertarian Convention uh, yesterday, so that's been posted on YouTube and also on freedomainradio.com. If you'd like to check that out, it's, uh, I think I certainly enjoyed myself. It's, uh, a, uh, the topic is uh, environmental protection without the state. So uh, I think that would be, uh, you, may, you may enjoy that. Uh, I certainly had a fun. It was a very enjoyable crowd. Uh, I didn't get quite the lynching that I was expecting to get by presenting uh, an anarcho-capitalist solution, although I didn't particularly reveal that until the end. Uh, by presenting an anarcho-capitalist solution at a minarchist conference, uh, I felt that I was right on the edge of good taste, but uh, they certainly knew my opinions and asked me to come anyway, so <laughs> I could only assume that they uh, wanted to uh, uh, shine a different light on the same topics, and uh, uh, that was uh, very enjoyable, and everybody was very pleasant. And uh, the only thing that uh, they said after I presented the DRO option for solving air pollution I wanted to solve, uh, take a stab, of course, at solving the greatest challenge uh, of, um, uh, in many ways, of libertarian or free market economics, which is the solution to the problem of air pollution. After presenting that, uh, and saying somebody said, "Well, this could coexist with the state," and I then had to finally fess up and say, "Well, um, not so much, really, <laughs> for a variety of reasons." And we talked about those for a few minutes, and then the only mild reproof that I got was from the uh, the president of the Libertarian Party up here who was saying, well, this is just one of uh, a possible uh, solution. There could be many other solutions. This is just sort of one possible solution uh, to which I readily acceded, although I did not say, uh, as I could have if I wanted to push the issue, that this was a solution that uh, was one of many, none of which could rationally involve the existence of a state. But uh, I decided not to uh, because they'd been very hospitable and they were giving me a gift card. So. Um, this is where my integrity is purchasable uh, and not for an enormous amount of money. So uh, anyway, you can uh, have a watch of that on YouTube or listen to it. And uh, I thought I would just sort of start off because this came up, uh, and uh, this is a, I'll do a very brief intro here, and then I'll turn it over to uh, the intelligent people in the group, uh, i.e. the listeners. And um, I just wanted to talk a little bit about some history that may or may not be known by uh, a lot of people. Because uh, even in some fairly well-traveled libertarian circles, this question still uh, it, it haunts uh, people's view of history. And this question is, the um, I think, the only real time in history that uh, nuclear weapons were used against the civilian population, or any population really for that matter, uh, was, of course, as we all know, in August of 1945, 
when the United States dropped um, two atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I think about 72 hours apart, no more than two to three days apart. And I'll just give you a very sort of brief historical sketch of, um, of what occurred. Uh, this is all public record. This is nothing particularly shocking, uh, unless, of course, you've just you know, got your, your history from state schools and so on. But um, there, at least what I was taught was you know, the standard mythology of the victor, right, which is that the, um, the Japanese, uh, out of nowhere, with evil and inscrutable perfidy in a day of infamy, um, attacked uh, the U.S. Uh, with no uh, provocation, right, with no warning, without a formal declaration of war, the uh, Japanese attacked America at Pearl Harbor and um, uh, destroyed a good part of the fleet. And then the, uh, the, um, uh, the United States declared war on Germany, uh, sorry, on, uh, on, uh, on Jap Japan. And then I can't remember which treaty triggered it, whether it was the fact that there was a tripartite alliance between uh, Germany and Japan uh, and Italy, of course. But um, uh, because of that, America... Was had war declared on it by Germany, declared war back, and that was basically how the United States got uh, itself into the Second World War. Because after spending uh, ridiculous amounts of, of blood in the First World War, there was a great deal of skepticism as to the value of entering the Second World War in the American population, right? So in the Wilsonian sense, uh, Wilson was re-elected uh, as the whatever, I can't remember what number, president in 1916, and he was elected on the basic slogan, he kept us out of the war, right? Because this war was not perceived to be a good or evil conflict, but Wilson stoked up the fires of anti-Germanic sentiments with a good deal of participation from intellectuals and from the media. And there were all these ridiculous stories that were never verified. In fact, there was a very large reward put out to try and get people to verify the stories that the Germans, when they went into Belgium, were cutting off the arms of people and, you know, shoot all the usual stuff, that the atrocities that are always talked about in war as being always on the side of the, uh, the uh, opponent or potential opponent. And so, of course, America then entered the war and, uh, uh, you know, to make the world safe for democracy, which was ironic when you think about that they were coming into the war on the side of England and uh, France, which were the greatest uh, imperial powers in the world at the time, which is not to say that the English and French democracies were not a vast improvement over many other forms of government, but Wilson's major purpose was self-determination, not a free market, capitalist, minimal government kind of economy. His basic approach to virtue in the world was based on national self-determination, which uh, even by that standard would not paint the sort of uh, autocratic uh, powers of um, England and France and their overseas empires in very good light. So America kind of went into the First World War and spent an enormous amount of money, ruined the currency for uh, some time, and uh, I think 100,000 Americans uh, were killed, and of course some multiple of that were wounded. And then what happened? Well, as the German, uh, sorry, as the French Marshal Foch declared at the end, especially when he saw the terms of the Treaty of Versailles in 1919, one of the more prophetic statements in history, he said, this is not peace. This is detente for 20 years, which, of course, since the Germans invaded Poland in 1939, which was the official spark to World War II, proved quite accurate, although I guess the war ended in November of 1918, and the, uh, I can't remember exactly when the Treaty of Versailles was about six months, so he was off by a few months, but that's pretty good in terms of being able to predict history. So uh, there was no point uh, that was viewed in, in America with getting involved in another European conflict 
uh, in the Second World War, and so one of the things that occurred was that um, uh, Roosevelt knew that he could not uh, declare war against Germany and get away with it. Uh, this was still back in the time when it was generally perceived that the, the president needed to get Congress to declare war. There was still some uh, historical reverence for some of the principles in the Constitution, which is not uh, so much uh, anymore these days. But uh, So they basically blockaded Japan, and Japan, of course, being an island nation, knew that if, uh, if it was going to uh, have a war, it needed to do so before its stocks of oil and food were depleted. And so this is, of course, why they attacked Pearl Harbor because the United States, what on earth, what, what lunatic country would go and attack the United States? I mean, the, the most powerful country in the world. Uh, what, uh, <laughs> what madness would you do? Right? It's like going up, uh, you know, it's like being Woody Allen and going up and punching Mr. T uh, in the nuts or something. I mean, this is not really what you would do. You just have to be pretty desperate to do it, and this is where the Japanese were. Uh, and, of course, the Japanese society was pretty top-down and evil and so on. But uh, nonetheless, uh, then there was this bloody war, which we don't need to go into any detail. And uh, the, uh, the island hopping towards the Japanese continent occurred, and then just towards the end of the war, the, um, the uh, United States, uh, Roosevelt put forward unconditional surrender. Right? Unconditional, you have to surrender with no conditions. We will do with you what we will, said the Americans to the Japanese. And the Japanese said, look, we're, we're done. We know that we're done. Uh, there's just no possibility that we're going to do anything other than draw this conflict out in a horrible kind of way. And they'd already had these horrible attacks upon Tokyo, wherein uh, Tokyo was a city mostly made of wood. So when these incendiary bombs came down from the U.S. Air Force, uh, you know, you'd get 100,000 people would die in a raid. It was like the Dresden bombings and so on, uh, and some of the more uh, the bombings that occurred over England, but to a, a greater uh, degree. So they knew they were toast, and the Americans said, unconditional surrender, or nothing's going to happen. And they said, fine, we know we're done. There's just one thing. We want to keep the emperor. You know, we, we're sort of, uh, that's our thing. You know, we're, we're big on the emperor. So uh, Hirohito was his name. And there was a movie out, I think, of last year. I didn't see it, though, but it was supposed to be uh, dealing with this time frame. And so they said, no, you can't have the emperor. Uh, there's no, no, no luck for you. You don't get the emperor. It's unconditional. We can do whatever we want. You know, we can <laughs> ship all of your women off to uh, pleasure domes in San Francisco if we so choose. It's unconditional surrender, which is not a very intelligent way to go about concluding a war, but then war is not noted for its intelligent execution or conclusion. And so uh, the Japanese said no, and then the Americans uh, lit up uh, Hiroshima. And the uh, Japanese were suing for peace, and they said, basically, uh, whatever you want, you know, uh, you have this weapon from hell that has just incinerated a couple hundred thousand uh, uh, civilians, right, peaceful civilians. Uh, they didn't have any vote about the war. They didn't have any, they didn't, they weren't behind uh, the emperor. That wasn't even the excuse uh, that the Germans could be bombed for voting in Hitler, even though Hitler came in as a minority and then stole power. But... Uh, the Japanese sued for peace, uh, but, of course, the Americans then within 70 hours, which was not enough time for any negotiations to occur, lit up Nagasaki, and another couple of hundred thousand innocent civilians uh, went to the sky in clouds of ash. And then the Americans said, uh, and you may have noticed this if you follow the royal births in the modern newspapers, um, the Americans said, okay, well, it's over, but, hey, you know, you can keep your emperor anyway. Uh, so the whole uh, sticking point, which was supposed to be what caused the uh, bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which was whether or not 
the Japanese should be allowed to keep their emperor turned out to be a point that the Americans, although they denied the right of the Japanese to surrender and then killed, uh, murdered really, you know, a large number of Japanese civilians, that um, uh, this turned out not to be something that they wanted anyway. So, uh, you know, it was completely horrific uh, this that this occurred. And uh, so I just sort of wanted to point this out that there was this myth that I heard when I was sort of going to school and knee-high to a grasshopper that the, um, the invasion of the Japanese mainland was the only way in which the Japanese would ever surrender and therefore they had to go and bomb these people. Otherwise, they would have had a million troops killed invading the Japanese mainland and so on. Uh, it's just not true. I mean, it's not true. And this is exactly, you know, war and these kinds of things is exactly where you should just believe nothing, right? <laughs> Don't believe me. Go, you know, go look this stuff up, right? But, uh, you know, just when this, of course, has many, many parallels to the war on terror that, um, you know, whether you accept the official story of 9-11 or not, the idea that uh, people just out of nowhere came and attacked us, although we were doing nothing wrong, and these crazy homicidal uh, Muslims are just out of nowhere because they hate us for being good or being virtuous, and they hate our freedoms and so on. Uh, they just attacked us out of nowhere. And you need a, method a sort of national mythology that uh, we are you know, innocent to just, you know, just minded our own business officer, and this guy jumped out of the shadows uh, and attacked us for no reason. Uh, it's never the case. Um, it's never the case. You can certainly look at um, the amount of... Uh, uh, death and destruction that the U.S. has reigned upon the world in murderous foreign policies, overthrows of dictatorships, massive amounts of uh, uh, donations of arms to uh, dictatorships and foreign aid which props up dictatorships and all of this kind of stuff, not to mention the half a million Iraqi children supposed to have been killed by the blockade of the 1990s. Um, it's, you know, it's never out of nowhere. That's, that's the important thing to sort of understand in this kind of stuff. And there is, in this sort of passive-aggressive way, I mean, this is a, a, a meta-narrative of passive aggression in the way that you would look at uh, somebody who is uh, a bad-tempered person but has a surface kind of sweetness to them, right? So um, they will then provoke you with a smile. And there's a sort of parody of one of these women um, in, in Bridget Jones' diary, but... Um, boy, there's a cultural stretch <laughs> from Nagasaki to Bridget Jones' diary. But um, uh, this, um, uh, this kind of uh, approach is where you go around secretly provoking lots of other people, and then when somebody lashes back at you, then you act completely shocked and appalled and, and surprised, and then you just go pound people into the dirt, right? So the playground sort of scenario is you keep taking some kid's lunch money out back behind the garbage disposal or the garbage uh, dump that nobody can see, and this kid gets more and more upset and more and more angry but feels helpless because uh, you're you know five times his size in that beautiful thing that happens when some people hit puberty a little sooner than others. And I, was, I was pretty chicken-chested at 12. Some of the guys in my class had to like, shave the backs of their hands. And, you know, <laughs> really did make some leaps, right? And so you keep provoking this kid. You tease him mercilessly. And uh, uh, then one day, uh, the kid, uh, you know, balls up his fist and punches you uh, in the stomach. And it's a, it's a blow that's painful. And, and then you say, well, I'm sorry, but uh, this came out of nowhere. And bam, you pound the guy within an inch of his life, right? That is the sort of scenario. And this happens. It's not to pick on America. I mean, this is the same uh, thing that occurs throughout history uh, with, with governments. Uh, we look upon the French as cowards now, but there's very little 
that uh, needs to be known about a brutal murder, destruction, and desperate courage. And if the French don't know it, it's really not worth knowing uh, throughout their history. I mean, through Napoleon, they almost took over uh, all of Europe and a good chunks of, uh, uh, of North, Amer uh, North Africa and uh, almost made it to, uh, to uh, Stalingrad or, or whatever. It was in Petersburg back then. So, yeah, we, we talk about them as being cowards now, but I think that's just because they've seen a little bit more of it than, than they care to. And, of course, after the First World War, which was fought mostly on French soil, uh, there's not a lot of patience for, uh, for war. And this will, of course, come back to, uh, to America at some point, right, after your government goes crazy and starts uh, interfering with the lives and fortunes of people overseas. Uh, at some point, you know, you provoke the world enough and you're going to get hit back. And then you can say, well, this, this has all changed. The, the world is different. It's like, no, the world is now just mirrored a tiny little bit, right? The world is just mirrored uh, a tiny little bit uh, insofar as, as, as um, Noam Chomsky says, uh, not somebody who I agree with in terms of economics, but his analysis of, of empire is, I think, excellent, uh, says that there was nothing new about 9-11. It was the only difference was which way the weapons were pointing. Right? And it's, it's unthinkable that the countries which are supposed to be dominated and bullied and told what to do by the imperial power, uh, that they should ever strike back is unthinkable, right? And, and the, the, the pride of the vain, glorious warrior when uh, the, one of the little vassal states strikes back is it knows no bounds, the pride and rage of actually striking back against somebody who's uh, abusing and bullying you. Uh, the, the, the rage of the people then <laughs> knows no bounds. And so I just sort of wanted to, to go over that as sort of a brief introduction. Uh, this is not what the topic has to be today, but uh, I do think that um, it's something important to put out there just in case uh, people are sort of still stuck on some of the uh, history. This is not specifically revisionist history. Of course, uh, the history that is written by the victors, uh, it's barely even a history. It's more like a screenplay. It's got the demons and the villains. And it's, it's more like a religious text would be the way, uh, I think, to look at it. Uh, it's just sort of designed to... Although even in the religious text, God is not uh, particularly nice, whereas in the fairy tales that are written by the victors uh, of all kinds, right? I mean, this is not specific to the West or anything. It's all governments. That um, the narratives that are written by the victors have almost nothing to do with reality. And usually, if you want to know the truth, it's the, usually the complete inverse of what is uh, generally said. So... Oh, uh, there was a question, what was Truman's motivation uh, to, uh, to drop the bomb? Well, uh, there is, uh, there's a number of sort of questions, um, which is that, uh, you know, and, and nobody knows, right? You can't interrogate the dead, and certainly people don't leave much of a record of this. But uh, one of the motivations that is often talked about is that um, he wanted to scare the Russians by displaying the power uh, of this weapon and so on, but... Uh, there's no real way to know for sure, and certainly the Russians at this point did look like a fairly significant threat. Uh, the conflict over East and West Germany, uh, sorry, East and West Berlin, was still to come, uh, the Berlin blockade, but uh, uh, there's really no, uh, there's no way to know. Uh, it's like saying, what is the motive for George Bush to invade Iraq? I mean, there's no real way to know, uh, and there probably never will be a way to know. Uh, there's a certain amount of speculation you can put into it, but uh, it's very hard to really, uh, really sort of understand what that is. All right, well, that's uh, it for that topic. I'm going to open up the board now uh, to anybody who wants to talk about anything. Uh, as I mentioned, I have about another uh, 50 minutes or so before I have to head to New York, but uh, if anyone has any questions or comments, uh, the board is now open. A uh, quick one on the last uh, topic. Uh, sure. 
you're kind of suggesting that um, it seems like you're kind of suggesting that, that provocation is uh, a, in a sense a cause of war, um, but it, but more like a, I don't know, a, a continuing fuel for it. What um, what would what would you suggest as a good way to uh, uh, defuse or short circuit uh, this desire to continuously provoke each other into uh, states of aggression? Well, um, it's an excellent question, and I can't obviously do much justice to it. Uh, uh, maybe even give it a long time, I probably couldn't. But what I will say, sort of very briefly, is that uh, the the key thing to um, my particular belief is that war uh, is is there is a certain amount of uh, evil grandiosity. Uh, and uh, sort of malign megalomania involved in war and the declarations of war and sort of watching Robert McNamara in 1995 break down in tears when he was talking about his um, role in the madness of the 60s with Vietnam. You know, 60,000 Americans killed. You don't quite often hear as much about the, um, the 3.8 uh, million of Vietnamese who went to meet their makers. But um, when you see people uh, talking about that, uh, there really is no, uh, there's no way that I can really conceive of what goes on in somebody's psychology like that. So I certainly wouldn't try to, to heal them from that standpoint or even talk about a heal. But uh, what I would say is that the fundamental thing that always occurs with war, as we can see going on with the Iraq war at present, is a, a massive transfer of wealth, right? And we've talked about this before, that the provocations, uh, sure, uh, the most violent people in history get the most press, right? I mean, the most aggressive and violent people um, uh, get the most aggressive and violent American presidents are the ones considered to be the greatest, right? Uh, Roosevelt and, and Lincoln and, and so on and, uh, and Wilson. And the, the most destructive people get the greatest press. So certainly if you're trying to aim for the history books, uh, the slaughterhouse uh, is the way to go for sure. Um, because what happens, there's a certain amount of reaction formation and defensive formation that occurs when 100,000 of your citizens get killed, as in World War I, uh, there's a natural tendency, uh, once a human being receives a terrible blow, like the death of a family member, there's a, a, a sort of ex post facto justification that kicks into play where people say, well, it must have been for something. It must have been for something. Uh, uh, my, my father cannot have been killed for nothing. My son cannot have been killed for nothing. And, of course, that's what governments want to do. Is, is, you know, and, again, I'm not sort of saying they sit up plotting this. It's just a logic of the system that once you can get people killed... Um, then you almost don't need to come up with a reason for war. People will just sort of invent that stuff, especially if they're religious. But um, So there's that. But I think most fundamentally uh, the, uh, the, the reason that wars exist is because the, um, the people who declare them don't bear either any personal or financial liability for the destruction that they cause. Uh, in a sense, if you sort of know the phrase, the externalization of costs in economics, it's the idea that... Um, uh, you can get other people to pay for things that you should yourself be paying for. Um, like if I could get my neighbors to pay for my car, then that would be externalizing a cost to other people that I should normally be paying for myself. War is the ultimate externalization of costs because the leaders get to make thrilling and heroic speeches uh, and go down in the history books while they themselves and their families, uh, which is actually not quite true because uh, Roosevelt had four sons in active duty in the, um, in the war against uh, Japan, um, which I'm sure would say quite a bit about that family, but let's not get into that now. But the leaders themselves don't face either personal risk uh, or um, 
uh, financial risk, uh, or the, they don't pay. The, the costs of war are borne by uh, in, in those who suffer from inflation because there's always a massive amount of overprinting of currency during wartime and selling of these liberty bonds and so on. Uh, the soldiers, of course, uh, get paid uh, almost nothing relative to the, um, the private sector people. And uh, the, the people who make uh, war materials and weapons and uh, supplies, they make an absolute fortune, as I've talked about in one of my podcasts, as an example from World War I. So the fact that you can externalize the cost of war to taxpayers uh, has an enormous uh, effect on uh, whether war uh, gets prosecuted or not. And uh, there's some people who say if we stop worshiping warriors, then war will cease. But I think that human beings are just a little bit more practical than that. And sure, the leaders like it. The leaders want the war and the grandiosity and so on. But they're certainly encouraged and funded sort of fundamentally by people who make profits from war at the expense of other people. That would be my sort of – you just have to get rid of the state, and then you can't externalize the cost of war to taxpayers through inflation or taxes or the future generation through deficits. So, so without the apparatus of the state, there really is no capacity to uh, to continue to um, escalate. But in a situation where we're, you know, kind of stuck with the state, all we can really do then is just sit back and uh, wait for the vainglorious to uh, satisfy their egos. Well, it's like it's like a stock bubble or like an economic bubble, right? So. Um, it's like, you know, during the stock boom of the 90s, just as the housing boom of the current decade is going uh, through its uh, inevitable, you know, tulip South Sea bubble uh, sort of stage, right? I mean, the, uh, the, you, you can go out and say to people that uh, housing prices are going to crash, not because you're some sort of genius, but because it always does. Um, so you can go out and tell people all of that, but uh, that you know, wisdom holds very little sway against sort of mad uh, and, and self-profitable illusions, right? So uh, uh, megalomania is almost never touched by rationality. That's sort of the definition of megalomania. And when people have significant financial interests and megalomania, uh, mere philosophy is, you know, as dust in the wind <laughs> compared to those kinds of incentives. I think that we'll find that megalomania will dip just a little bit, if not be removed from the public sphere with the absence of the state. But no, uh, this sort of orgy of violence, um, at least I've never seen a place in history or a time in history where uh, people have been able to rein that in. It has to run its course uh, in the same way that uh, somebody who is uh, a drunk or a drug addict or you know, the power addicts and the war addicts, they have to just run their course. Uh, when, when the society, in a sense, hits bottom, then the violence doesn't go away. Like, I mean, it just gets subsumed uh, into another area. Um, I mean, so France, I mean, obviously gave up on war uh, even before the Second World War. I mean, there really wasn't much of a spirit to defense of France because they kind of got that nothing changed after the First World War, so why get killed again for something that isn't really going to change anything? And so, but then, of course, they all went socialist after the end of the Second World War. And uh, so the violence still exists within French society. It's just subsumed into the sort of um, uh, the welfare state and uh, unions and so on, so taxation. So, uh, But at some point, you know, uh, uh, human beings will suffer enough, um, and I wish it didn't have to be this way, and I certainly would like to find a way to, <laughs> to change this, but it seems to be fairly universal that um, people and cultures uh, suffer, uh, and uh, that seems to be the only way to get rid of mass delusion is, is through suffering. And, I mean, I wish there was another way, uh, but it doesn't seem to be the case. Which actually kind of uh, leads me back to another question I had. This actually has been nagging me for a while. You mentioned um, 
the the you know the this sort of respect for uh the historical precedent of the 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 precepts of the constitution uh, in a, in a situation where you know uh, uh you know a guy like Roosevelt or Truman is willing to unload on the Japanese as a display of power for the you know for the sake of the Russians um why this desire to cling to some sort of pretense around you know the rules, you know, once they have the reins of power, what do they really care whether, you know, they're obeying the uh, the, the the mandates of the Constitution or not? I mean, why why this kabuki dance around, you know, the the the, the, uh, the, the you know the, the the Bill of Rights and all of that crap? You know, it just seems kind of like, uh, you know. A, if I was, uh, you know, a crazy madman, uh, it would be kind of an inconvenience, uh, you know, a pretty inefficient way to run my government to have to uh, assuage all of these, um, you know, warm, fuzzy feelings about uh, human rights and, and whatnot. I'd just say, you know, screw it. I have the guns. I'm going to go do whatever I want. Right, right, right. So we're working with sort of two fairly improbable hypotheses. One is that the state uh, would not want to be interested in this kind of propaganda, and the second, that you're not a crazy lunatic, right? So we'll deal with the first one uh, first, and then we'll get to the second one. But, uh, <laughs> well, remember, though, that the state rests on the uh, obedience of the people. I mean, the state rests on the obedience of the people, and what governments always want to do is to lower the cost of ownership for having taxpayers, right? Just as a, um, uh, you, I don't know, maybe you could get good meat out of a lion as well as a cow, but a lion would be a little bit more risky to have uh, sort of prowling around, <laughs> you know, maybe you could go and get nice milk from a female lion, but you're probably going to want to prefer to go and milk a cow because that's going to lower your total cost of ownership for your livestock, right? I mean, so the the more placid the uh, the animal, the cheaper the total cost of ownership when you're exploiting that animal as a resource, and the same thing, I think, would logically be entirely true uh, with taxpayers. So, um uh, I think that, and again, I'm not saying this is sort of a consciously plotted plan, but it just would seem logical that if you can get people to believe that uh, you should pay your taxes because you don't want the terrorists to win because they're evil and we're good, uh, as I've sort of said, the motivation for morality is the greatest motivation in human life. It's something that libertarians, again, I'm sort of pounding at them over and over to start using the argument for morality, but people's desire to be thought of as good and to uh, obey the good is... Um, uh, is by far the most powerful motivation in human life. It absolutely transcends survival. It absolutely transcends uh, people's desire to survive and propagate, right? And we can see this simply because uh, young men, many of them prior to family, if they are uh, drafted, will go. I mean, they, they don't go because everyone forces them to go. They go because it would be considered cowardly not to. It's what you do. It's noble. It's this and that. So... Uh, people's desire, and I have no idea why this exists biologically, and maybe biologists could tell me otherwise, but just sort of working empirically, and I, I really disliked this theory when I first began to poke around in it, but just working empirically, um, uh, human beings would, you know, whatever it takes to think of themselves as good, as moral, uh, it's a bizarre gene that we have, or a series of genes, but uh, human beings will do anything to believe that they're moral. And if they give up on the morality of a particular situation or ethic, 
then um, it becomes almost impossible to rule them, right, as we sort of saw with, with Russia. I mean, obviously, Russia ran out of money in 1989, but, you know, just as importantly, I think it also ran out of any kind of faith in the ethics or belief in the moral virtues of, of planned economies and socialism and so on. So uh, controlling the ethical debate is absolutely central to maintaining a power. Uh, of course, this is as true in the microcosm of the family, which, of course, Christina rightly puts as the macrocosm of the state, uh, it's as true that uh, parents need to have their children believe that the parents are telling them what to do because the parents are wise and virtuous rather than that, say, if it's the case that the parents are sort of petty and, and uh, control freaks. Um, but the belief that we subsume ourselves to power for the sake of virtue is very, very uh, powerful, and therefore it really lowers the total cost of ownership. I mean, if taxpayers really got, and they actually are beginning to get, I mean, I'm just amazed at the conversations that I'm having with people outside of the freedom movement these days. And, of course, this just occurred up here in Canada that these uh, income trusts have just been savagely uh, thrown into the tax prison and uh, has just wiped out, you know, sort of $30, $25 billion worth of uh, people's investments because um, there was a way to get out of corporate income tax or pay less if you moved your corporation to an income trust. And several large companies were doing this. And so the government was like, you know, <laughs> the cows are getting away. <laughs> the cows are getting away. And they, you know, shot them in the leg so they could get them back and heal them up and milk them some more. So I think that it's essential that the moral debate is controlled by those in power because that is just the greatest and most powerful lever in the human soul is the desire to be good. And the leaders tell this themselves as well, right? The leaders don't look in the mirror, I think, and say, you know, boo-ah-ha, I am the most evil uh, being that has ever lived, right? They all have their own stories as to uh, why it is that they're so virtuous. But I think it seems pretty essential that you have to control the moral debate in order to control the people. That's why if you look at the growth of state power, uh, it really accelerated uh, a generation after the children were educated by the state. Again, nothing conspiratorial about it. It's just uh, inevitable. Human beings have a great, great instinct to control others, right? Because it's a perfectly viable uh, biological strategy, as we've talked about before. And so if there's uh, human beings to be exploited who are, uh, will let themselves be exploited, then the, the world has never been short of people willing to uh, exploit them, right? No dictatorship has ever folded because they just couldn't find any torturers or, or sort of, uh, you know, midnight raid, Black Maria kind of uh, uh, policemen, and, and uh, wars have never um, uh, ended because they just couldn't find anyone willing to run the war or be a general or shoot people. Um, so the, the, the price you pay for illusions is, uh, is violence, right? Uh, violence either in your personal relationships within your society uh, and that's why if you want to reduce the world's violence, you have to try and teach it, I think, a kind of wisdom. But that's, uh, that's very painful for a lot of people. So, I mean, telling people that they're not as good as they think they are is uh, – it certainly was a brutal experience for me when I sort of began to really re reflect on my life and where I was relative to my values. Oh, it's ghastly. Um, but it's, you know, it's the, it's the f sort of the fire that you need to pass through uh, sort of to get to the promised land, so to speak. So, so in a sense uh – Jefferson's uh, assertion in the Declaration is is absolutely right. If we substitute out one word, that governments derive their powers from the compliance of the governed. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, asking, but but in I mean compliance, and I, I've used the term myself, and I, I sort of just want to spend a second qualifying it because just the same way that uh, I have to rely on a brain surgeon if I get some sort of tumor. Um, from 
too much podcasting, then uh, I, I'm not going to sit there and say, uh, well, I'll order a book on brain surgery. Uh, I'll, I'll get a spoon, uh, a saw, and a spittoon and go to town. Um, in the same way, uh, people do um, generally assume that there are experts out there who are philosophers or who have defined uh, virtues and values, and they really don't have the capacity to invent ethics for themselves. It's a brutally hard thing to do, as we know, through these conversations. So, uh, I mean, I do believe that there's a betrayal of the people by the intellectuals that's pretty significant in this. Uh, but, of course, the vicious circle is that the government, um, the people believe in the virtue of the government, and therefore the government can take money from them with relatively little effort because they believe it's virtuous. And with the money that the government takes from the taxpayers, it sort of pays a small number of policemen uh, to patrol and to haul in the occasional malcontents, and it pays an entire army of propagandists uh, right, to, uh, uh, to convince the people that what they're subjecting themselves to is virtuous and that there's these abstract entities called the government and the country and the state and the nation and the history and the race and this and that and the religion, which you know they must sacrifice themselves to. It's nothing personal and so on. So um, I don't think that um, uh, people really uh, – it, it, it's not quite obedience, if that makes any sense, just because I'm not sure for a lot of people that there's, there's much option because you simply can't be good at everything. And philosophy is just about, I think, just about the hardest thing. So uh, I, it's maybe asking too much of the average population just as it would be to ask someone to be you know, a, a great lawyer and physicist and doctor and you know, businessman and so on, uh, that uh, the specialization that occurs within life is pretty powerful, and, and uh, uh, I think people just kind of assume that uh, ph the philosophers who are around, whoever's defining the values, have some sort of reason behind what they're saying. Right. It's a resignation, really, to just shrug, you know, you shrug your shoulders and say, well, they've, you know, somebody must have figured it out, so this has to be the right thing to do, right? Which is Yeah, why. it feels wrong, but hey, you know. It feels wrong that the world is round, but people tell me it, it is. <laughs> you know, like uh, the, the people's emotions when it comes to, to ethics and philosophy are not always reasonable guides, right? Just as they're not reasonable guides, just as sort of direct sensual evidence isn't a reasonable guide about the shape of the, of the solar system, right? Or, the, you know, whether the world is flat or the earth goes around the sun or vice versa or whatever. So, yeah, it's definitely uh, economics and philosophy are, uh, and, and to a large degree physics uh, uh, the counterintuitive sciences, right? Which is why they they take such discipline. Which is another reason why people have no problem calling the French cowards, uh, while at the same time calling ourselves courageous for uh, vaporizing millions of defenseless Japanese. Oh, sure, absolutely. And um, I mean the the um, <laughs> the average French. Uh, the, the history of, of France is filled with many more wars than America's even remotely been involved in, even overseas. And the amount of slaughter that the French have experienced uh, within generations still living is something that, or people still living, is, uh, is something that Americans simply can't imagine. And so, you know, if, if somebody has come back from some ghastly, god-awful war experience, and when a car backfires, you know, they cower and sweat uh, with an autonomic, uh, autonomic nervous reaction, and it doesn't bother me at all because I've been sitting home uh, comfortable uh, si sipping my pop and you know flipping the, the channels around on the TV uh, for me then and say hey how come you're so jumpy that's pretty cowardly I mean <laughs> it just represents an abysmal uh, kind of uh, contempt for uh, and, and lack of empathy for others which of course is pretty much required of an imperial power right I mean America has inherited the arrogance of the Western Europeans the French and the British which is that um, uh, we're better 
because we're more brutal, but we, have, uh, we, we, we can't say that, right? You can't say, uh, America, we're number one because we kill people, right? <laughs> no, nobody says that. I don't know, maybe, maybe Tony Soprano says that. Or something, oh, but, because we kill uh, the bad people, see, that's why. Well, sure, uh, sure, they do say that, but, but even that is not directly focused on. They'll say, we defended ourselves against the bad people, and regrettably there was some collateral damage. But um, uh, people don't say, you know, we're better because we're, kill we're the best killers around, right? We use, we use violence the most effectively and the best. Uh, people really uh, can't stomach that, but the brutality remains very real in the unconscious. So when you say that we're good and the unconscious knows that you're good because you're brutal, you have no choice logically and emotionally but to make a virtue out of brutality, right, which is where you end up calling other people cowards and foreigners gooks and all this kind of stuff, right, and, and having no, um, no empathy for the poor masses of Muslim slaves who grew up in these horrible, brutal, you know, rapey, honor-killing, child-abusing kind of theocracies and then just can't imagine why these people are sort of volatile and crazy, uh, although, of course, if you and I were put in the same situation, 99.9% uh, .9 likely we would end up exactly the same way as would every American uh, in the world, right, and everyone else in the world, right? So it's not having any empathy uh, for others. It's just saying, well, I'm good, not recognizing that you may be good because you're a little freer than other people, but feeling that what is accidental is virtuous, right? It's, uh, it's a real curse. Hey, you know, I think we have the most successful show of driving people away. Maybe we can make the topics a little darker. <laughs> <laughs> I, I find, uh, actually, though, that... Uh, oops. oops, I had it muted. I find, though, that actually it's a kind of a sliding scale, uh, and, it, and, and, and it slides around inside even one single person's head. You know, I've got... I got one brother who actually does think that because we're the best at, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> the whole special ops thing where we can go in and uh, kill you in 15 different ways uh, without you even realizing we're there, that that's what makes us great. And then I've got another brother who's of the, uh, you know, well, you know, if we didn't have to kill these people, we wouldn't, but they're evil, so we have to, right? So there's kind of a sliding scale of uh, of uh, goodness that, uh, that different people kind of land on. Uh, I find that you know that people aren't all in one camp or another. That they they kind of and depending on the situation too. Right. So. Well, I would say, though, that the similarities would be much greater than the differences. And I'm sorry to have to use your brothers as an example here, but um, if somebody says. Yeah, it's it's great that we go and strangle these people in their sleep and we, we come as shadows over the wall and we leave, you know, this Genghis Khan thing, you know, that the <laughs> there is no joy greater than the slaughter of your enemy, this kind of stuff, right? I mean, if you've got that kind of, uh, you know, semi-homicidal view on the world, then that is um, traditionally you could say that sort of a masculine kind of approach to conflict. And then there's another more passive-aggressive approach to conflict, you know, so there's, there's, there's a dad who'll beat you with a gleam of sadism in his eye and, you know, uh, will get all sweaty and excited with the, the, ch the opportunity to beat his child. And then there's the more controlled sadist who says, well, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. Um, regretfully, you have brought this punishment on yourself. Uh, I don't relish it, but uh, it is the right thing to do. And I can't control your behavior. I can only react to it and therefore uh, I'm afraid you must be beaten. 
Um, I'm not sure who's more scary. Probably the second guy for me, right? Because um, when you say that we regretfully have to go around killing bad guys, uh, it's not as obvious. Therefore, it's harder to um, it's harder to combat. If that makes any sense. Um. Well. <laughs> Again, this is not specific to your brothers because I just sort of dragged them in. But th if right. you just sort of take the example of the child beating loony dad or mom, I, I think that if you if you get the, the you know, if, you, if you're going to get beaten as a kid, like you want the person who's going to scream out the name of seven devils from another world and, you know, like uh, you, you want them to be crazy so that you can go, holy crap, this person's insane, right? But, you know, if you have one of these military-style dads, uh, you know, who's uh, socially accepted and it looks like the norm, I mean, I think those kids end up a lot more messed up in some ways. Right. You know, t take your punishment like a man, all that crap. Yeah, you know, I'm sorry to have to do this to you, son, but it's for your own good. It's like, can you just be some crazy lunatic guy who's in a cult? Maybe it would be a little easier for me to identify and save me some money on therapy down the road. So then you're, what you're saying is that uh, because they're the, the, the second order is capable of sort of twisting around the, the nature of morality, that uh, it makes it more difficult to unravel on the other end. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the Catholic thing, right? You know, once a Catholic, always a Catholic, right? If they get you, if they get their hooks in you about ethics, right? I mean, there's one advantage that I had, you know. I mean, it's, it's stretching the word advantage fairly thin, but in the violence I experienced as a child, um, certainly from my mother, there was never really a moral aspect to it. It wasn't like, I, mean, I hate to laugh about it, but there really wasn't a moral aspect to it. Uh, it was just, you know, I'm in a bad mood, you know. It was never really like, uh, you know, uh, for, for the sake of saving your soul from eternal Satan, uh, I must, you know, uh, set you on fire or something. Not that it happened to me, but, you know, if it's just crazy people venting, then you can denormalize it. But if it's, if it's controlled and normalized social violence, then it's very hard because then you have to not just react, uh, reject sort of crazy, your crazy parents, then you have to reject society as a whole, which is a lot harder for people since we're sort of socially constructed in many ways. Yeah, and then imagine having both orders in the same household. <laughs> um, do you mean in terms of both, uh, both parents or? Both types of uh, mentality in the same household. Right. Well, you know, and that's the, not the, uncommon, right? The, the irrational, crazy person and the uh, the, the cold, calculating uh, sadist. Right. Well, I mean, that's you know, that's uh, I'm still waiting for my parents and my brother to listen to these podcasts. But that was certainly my family history with my mother, who was you know, with the, the crazy uh, uh, person, and then my brother, who was sort of the colder, more calculated. This is for your own good kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, no, I, I've had sort of some experience with both, but the sort of primary. Uh, gee, dare, dare I use the term caregiver? Um, <laughs> the primary boss was uh, uh, not uh, not that way. So I think we've all had experience with it one way or another. And of course, teachers are sort of past masters of the the horrible, soul destroying lecture on morality. I mean, it's just I just had so many of those when I was a kid, and I was a pretty good kid. I wasn't. Uh, I didn't get into any real trouble, but. Um, uh, the number of times you'd get these these grinding lectures from uh, petty bureaucratic little teachers about what it means to respect school property and what it means to respect your fellow students and so on, right? And we're all herded in there like cows to slaughter, and you know, it's like it's like I mean the word respect really wouldn't come out very much in that context to me at least, but uh, it seems to certainly go a long way with some of the other people. But I mean nobody really believed that kind of stuff. It was mostly just nonsense. I think it was perceived that way.
So in a sense, then, that's why we have such a hard time seeing our leaders in in a negative vein is because they can kind of juxtapose themselves against, you know, uh, you know, like, well, you know, compare George Bush to, uh, you know, uh, John Wayne Gacy, for example, and, and say, well, you know, I, you know I, I'm not this crazy lunatic like you think, because uh, like, look at that guy, you know, he just randomly slaughtering people on the street. I'm doing uh, what I have to do for the good, right? Yeah, and I'm dressed in a suit, and I, uh, you know, people cheer me, and I'm, you know, if I was a criminal, why wouldn't I be in jail, right? I mean, why would I get ticker tape parades and go down in the history books, right? But it's the people in suits that get people killed, right? I mean, this is the great, I mean, you know this, right? But this is the great lie about anarchism. It's like, well, what about all these crazy people? It's like, uh, <laughs> you know, look at the death toll of the 20th century, and it wasn't John Wayne Gacy who was killing people, right? I mean, it's the guys in suits. Uh, it's the guys with palaces. It's the guys with Rolls Royces. Uh, it's the guys who are, you know, really normal, uh, normal. And by the time you become a taxpayer and they start taxing you, you have to have already gone through this process where you can no longer experience being exploited, right? I mean, you, you simply can't. I mean, the whole system would break down. I mean, it wouldn't work at all. You, you simply can't send the police over to go and co collect money from people uh, it was said that the labor costs would just be far greater and the resistance capacities of people to to shoot back would be too great. I mean, so when you have to be broken body and soul by the time you, you get out of uh, a public school, I mean, you, you have to, and, and your parents, of course, have a good deal to do with this as well, but uh, you, you simply can't think of yourself as an equal to those in power. I mean, you simply can't. I mean, it has to be unimaginable for you that you would disagree with someone like George Bush and that it would mean anything. I mean, your, your own opinions uh, have to mean absolutely nothing. And the only value that you can gain is getting, you know, some food pellets and hopefully avoiding the electrical shocks of those who are so Im unimaginably more powerful, virtuous, and great than you that you should just be lucky to get some, you know, crumbs of cheese and lucky if you don't get thrown in jail and lucky that taxation is only 40%. And, you know, you should count your blessings that your great masters have decided to let you, uh, you know, have decided to ignore you. Uh, and, of course, a lot of this comes back to religion as well. You know, how, how large are we relative to the greatest power? But, oh, yeah, you have to be completely broken. I mean, if you, if you, if the population woke up tomorrow and said, who the hell is this George Bush guy? I mean, <laughs> what the hell does he have to say to me? I mean, why is my opinion so much less important than his? Why does he get to take half my money and I don't get to take any of his money? I mean, the whole system would collapse, like, by noon, right? So th there's a whole series of steps that are, you know, pretty finely tuned after so much uh, human history. Uh, pretty finely tuned to make sure that people never think of themselves with any real self-esteem and never think of themselves as truly equal, right? All men are created equal. That's sort of the, that's the perverse dictum of every single hegemonic hierarchical structure uh, in society. Now, all men are created equal, but don't you dare even remotely think of comparing yourself to your leaders and saying that I have as much value. I mean, the whole thing would simply not, not exist. But, but there still has to be an association there. I mean, otherwise... You know, because in some sense, you know, a lot of people who I talk to about, especially like the the, the bombing of Pearl, I mean, of uh, Nagasaki and uh, Hiroshima, is that they can't bear the thought that their government uh, committed an evil act because it implies that uh, they themselves and the society that they live in and 
everything around them is evil as well. So so there's there there has to be a certain amount of association there, right? Well, I think that um uh, the peop- I mean, this is a, this is why I try to be so sensitive as best as I can when I'm talking to people either on the board or in person about these ideas. Uh, everybody knows. Everybody knows. The reason that people don't want to hear about doubts about what happened at 9-11 and the, people, the reason that people don't want to hear about, you know, the underfunding of Social Security and the, people, the reason people don't want to hear about the failure of the war on drugs and the reason people don't want to hear about war and don't want to talk about what happened, the reason that people live in this moment-by-moment a situation where they they have to talk about nothing but empty, useless trivialities, and they have to get involved with their sports teams, and they have to run around thinking that the important thing is the next SUV. The reason that people live such trivial, empty lives of quiet desperation is because they know, right down to their absolute and total core, the final, complete, and total truth about their society. They know in the same way that a child knows every single hypocrisy and corruption and evil and, and, and falsehood within the family, uh, everybody knows the exact truth about their society. I mean, if somebody came to me and said, hey, did you know Genghis Khan had a predilection for disco suits? I'd say, really? <laughs> What's the evidence? I mean, that, I've never heard of that before. That, that's quite fascinating, right? Because somebody would be telling me something that I didn't know, that I, you know. But, but when you tell people about their government... People don't want to know because they do know, right? They, they don't want you to, it's like, we don't go there, right? We don't talk about that because we know. Right? Don't it's like that elephant in the room and that old metaphor that everyone has to step around, right? They're stepping around it because they know there's an elephant in the room that they just can't talk about, but they keep edging around it, right? The elephant in the room dictates everybody's thoughts and decisions. The omnipresence and growing nature of the gun in the room within our society is dominating everybody's thoughts and everybody's interactions, and it's growing, and everybody knows the truth about everything, right? And I guess this is, you know, this is the question about, they, don't, they can't really, really figure it out, and they can't figure out the value of going to the place that nobody wants to go to, right? The dark side, the, the side of complicity with, with corruption and, and our own participation in the bloodlust of war and, and the, 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 the virtue or the, the vanity of, of being associated with an imperial power or a Western country to think I'm better because I was born here and I'm accidentally free. Um, people, they just, they know everything there is to know, right? Libertarians aren't telling anybody things that they don't know. And Christina and I have noticed this. Right? We were at a party a little while back, and, a couple of years ago now, and um, you know, we're talking about the government as violence, right? Uh, people, you know, they'll give you a certain kind of resistance, but very quickly it's like, okay, it is, but it's, it's the right thing to do anyway. It's justified. Like, they know this. Does, libertarian, we're not, we're not inventors. We're archaeologists, right? We're, we're like therapists, right, in that we're not telling people what their childhoods were. We're saying you need to deal with your history. Right, but these they people know, they know their history, they know the effects, they know, right? They, they know in their gut that the current system can't go on. They know that the government power continues to increase. They open the paper, and everything they read is about yet another government disaster and yet another increase in government power. Uh, everybody knows it's completely unsustainable. People aren't stupid, but they simply will the knowledge away because they don't believe it's solvable. Right? So, right. Well, but- I'm sorry, it's more than they don't believe it's solvable, but. Uh, that's the, the most charitable thing that I could come up with at short notice. Right, but I do, I do think that there's, I mean, there's two classes of thought out there. That, you know, the people who say that, you know, America is good because it's powerful, 
which is one of my brothers, and the other one who says that America is powerful because it's good. Right. Sure, favored by God and so on. Right. So. Well, sure, absolutely, and then um, you know, but the the, the 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 thing that is axiomatic in both is that America is powerful, and that that should be the case, right? And 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 uh, uh, the 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 question to ask, I mean, not that I'm suggesting you do this, I mean, unless you want to give up your ribs forever, but um, uh, it's you know, well, what, what why why should uh, the American government be powerful? Why should George Bush have all of this authority, right? I mean. That's sort of the basic question. This is the huge thing that, you know, everybody's life is designed to avoid asking and answering, you know. Uh, are my parents good for having sex and breeding? Well, no, of course. Then every guppy is, you know, a moral prince, right? Uh, are my parents virtuous for having uh, sex and having children? No. I mean, uh, the simple act of breeding, which is performed by everything from an amoeba upwards, uh, is, and cancer, right, the simple act of replicating is not grant somebody a moral status, right? I mean, people just, they know that deep down, but they don't want to talk about it. Uh, is is a government uh, virtuous because it wields power? Although the real question is why? Uh, why does it wield that power? Why why is it that uh, George Bush or, or Tony Blair or you know Mukhtar El Sadr or whatever his name is? Well, why is it these people uh, have the right to tell everybody else what to do or throw them in jail? I mean that's sort of the basic question. People spend their whole life I mean, lives are emptied out in the avoidance of this basic basic question, and it doesn't take any real intelligence to pursue that, but it is incredibly disturbing to people, right? Which is why it's very important that we deal with these issues within our own souls before we go around uh, talking to other people because uh, you can't free people if you're still dragging around your own chains. Your underground railroads are going to be pretty short, right? Actually, I had uh, somebody suggest to me uh, the other day uh, power doesn't corrupt. Power itself is corruption. Yeah, it's very interesting. It's very interesting. And uh, when you when you think yeah, about it, yeah, and certainly uh, I don't think corrupt like people who aren't already corrupt don't want power. Right. I mean, right. it's so it's, it's not like the a, a corrupting them. It's the fact that they've already identified with power as a as a uh, as a goal to be sought. Right, and what a ridiculous, useless, and empty life it is. Not so much the exercise of power, but the posturing that all accompanies the exercise of power. Uh, it's just, uh, I mean, the, the posturing and the emptiness of people's lives who are, who are in power is just horrendous, absolutely horrendous. There's an enormously ugly toll that is taken upon people's souls by the exercise of power because they have to lie about it all the time. Right? And, and they know even more so than the general population the lies and hypocrisies of power. But they have to keep... Right? I mean, we, we all think they're in charge, right? But what is George Bush doing? He's running around, kissing babies, uh, making speeches. Uh, you know, he, he has every, every moment of his day is scheduled for him to make an appearance to sway some people with some rancid bullshit that uh, causes them to kowtow to those in power. Right. I mean, how free is he? He's not free at all. Right. To constantly remind people of how, how good he is and how what he's doing is the right thing. If yeah, yeah, to talk to them about the dangerous. Yeah, I mean, the man doesn't exist except as a, a tool and a reflection of people's need to believe in something uh, or to avoid that sort of basic question of, you know, uh, if we're all equal, um, why are some of us so much more equal <laughs> than others, right? It's that basic <laughs> animal farm question, right? I mean, uh, some, you know, if all men are born equal and we're supposed to give our consent to our leaders, uh, then why is it that. Um, they get to do whatever they want. <laughs> you know, like it doesn't make any sense, right? Right, as long as they pay homage to the uh, to the rules. 
For sure. Now, let me just uh, open up in case anyone has any other questions before I have to begin my uh, toodle-doodle on exit strategy. Uh, so the, um, uh, uh, the, uh, the board is open. If anybody has any other sort of uh, questions, I'd be more than happy to, uh, to talk or ask or answer or, or listen. <coughs> Hello? Hello. Yeah, this is Lionel Hertz. All right. One split second. You know, it's nice not to have all of these people with their, you know, the people phoning in from discos and, you know, uh, I don't know, hiding in, in the bowels of airplanes or something, but uh, uh, go ahead. Yeah, um, just a quote. Oh, I'm so sorry. Um, Skype is, uh, let me just try this. I'm so sorry. Can you start that again? Yeah, um, you were speaking earlier about um, FDR, World War II and Truman, etc. I was just wondering, what, um, in your opinion, um, if the U.S. had not entered the Second World War, uh, how do you think it would have turned out? Do you think the Allies would have lost, or um, would the Allies still have won? Oh, no, the, uh, the Allies would not have lost. It would have been impossible. I mean, the moment that Hitler went into Germany, he was, uh, sorry, the moment Hitler went into to Russia, he was doomed, just as Napoleon was before him. Um, so, yeah, no, with, without a doubt, um, there's no way that the Allies, um, that the Allies would have lost. So, um, uh, but, but what may have occurred, of course, is that um, the war um, would have uh, would have ended sooner, just as the First World War might have ended sooner without America lending all of this money, and America did lend money to both Germany and England in the First World War, uh, and of course without the sort of lend-lease situation and so on. Um, but uh, um, uh, yeah, I mean, there's there's no way to really know for sure. But uh, everyone who's ever gone into Russia has uh, been destroyed uh, as a result. So um, yeah, it, it could have been possible that they they would have lost. It could have been possible that they would have won. Um, and and of course, for me as a philosopher, once you get into situations of war, uh, you know, the time for philosophy is long past, right? I mean, so I certainly re recognize the value of the question. But um, uh, once you're in a situation of war. Uh, you, the philosophers can do you no good at all, right? As I've talked about before, it's like once you've got lung cancer, uh, somebody telling you to quit smoking doesn't, you know, doesn't really do you as much good. The whole point of philosophy is prevention rather than cure. Um, I think that what could have occurred uh, in, the, um, uh, in the Second World War, because I would certainly argue in the general sense that even though the... Um, uh, uh, even though uh, the Allies sort of, quote, won the war, they didn't win the war, right? Because the war was not against Germany, right? I mean, at least that's not how it's portrayed. It's not like we don't like people with big mus mustaches and beer steins. That wasn't really how the war was portrayed. The war is portrayed as we are against uh, despotism. You know, we are against uh, centrally planned economies. We are against, um, we are against uh, a dictatorship, right? So... <coughs> If you're against dictatorship and you're against socialism, then you would really logically think that if you're going to fight a war against socialism and dictatorship, then uh, your government would not continue to grow in size after you have defeated um, an enemy who is an enemy because the government is too large, right? It's like saying, um, I'm very much against cancer, uh, and I hope to get something that's not quite as bad as cancer, but sort of a low-grade leukemia 
after I fought cancer, right? I mean, that wouldn't really be a victory. You've bought yourself a little bit of time, but you're still heading in the same direction. Mm -hmm. And so the institution of um, socialism, uh, particularly in the UK, but of course after the Second World War, America had a standing army, uh, and has since in the creation of the military-industrial complex has all occurred, and we know what's going on. And it really didn't take very long, right? It was really, I mean, after the first, uh, sorry, after the Second World War, then in the 50s, the U.S. went into Korea, and then in the 60s, the U.S. went into uh, Vietnam and uh, you know, caused millions of deaths and, you know, for no purpose whatsoever. Um, so uh, I don't really view the Second World War. The Second World War, the only entity that won was the state as a whole. But the, the state won. Uh, the state always wins the war. And the, the citizens don't win. Uh, freedom never wins because governments are always bigger after and there's a huge amount of national debt and so on. But... Uh, um, I wouldn't say that the Allies won the war. I would say that governments around the world gained an enormous amount of power from the war, and not just because of the execution of the war, but also because um, of the mythologies that accompanied the execution of the war. Like, you know, there was this Great Depression that was caused by capitalism, and then the government saved it, and the government could do all these great things, like defeat Nazism and put a man on the moon and so on. Uh, you know, that's just a belief that people have that's not based on any evidence, and the price that they pay for that is a continual diminishment of their uh, civil and economic liberties. And so I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't say that the citizens won the war. I would say that the governments won the war and uh, taught everyone how virtuous they were. And, you know, I mean, England, as you know, the whole generation lost to the socialist malaise and so on. So I wouldn't say that uh, victory is a hard thing to talk about in terms of war. But uh, certainly uh, freedom didn't win the war for sure because freedom's been on the retreat ever since the First World War, uh, so, uh, you know, freedom continual, continually loses and the state continually gains. Yeah, yeah. Um, just another quick question before we go. Um, someone once told me um, that they thought the only, well, libertarian, in inverted commas, wars in American history are the War of 1812 against Britain and the Revolutionary War again against Britain. Uh, would you agree with that? Um, well, I, I'm not much of an expert on the War of 1812. I know that uh, we Canadians went down and burned the White House, but I really couldn't tell you what it was all about. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's it's tough to say. Libertarian uh, to me, a libertarian war is like a, you know a philosophical gunfire. Like to me, it's just an oxymoron. Uh, I think that you, I mean, let's use the word war sort of metaphorically to say we're battling ignorance and, and deceit and, and delusion and fantasy and so on. Um, I don't think that you can have uh, a, a good outcome from a uh, violent conflict. Uh, I think that uh, the trauma and the scars that it creates are enormous. I would say that uh, if you were to look at the, um, the Revolutionary War from the standpoint of a middle-class white guy uh, in uh, New York, then, yeah, I would say that he was a little bit more free for some time after the, the war. If you were to ask any of the people who got killed in the war uh, on the American side, they were obviously free to do, no to do nothing but decompose. Um, and if it really were a libertarian war, then it would have enshrined property, voluntarism, and, of course, it would have ended slavery. So for, and, of course, it would have given some economic uh, independence and equality to women, and it might have recognized the rights of children to some degree. So uh, I think it's, you know, not wanting to totally diss the American experiment, which is a wonderful leap forward in many ways, but uh, it really was a very small subsection of the population that gained, and uh, you can't really think I say that we've, you know, we've now established a libertarian society in which slavery and the subjugation of women is perfectly legal. 
Uh, I wouldn't say that that's a very libertarian conflict. And again, I can't really speak much to the War of 1812. Um, okay. Um, if I remember correctly, I think 1812 started because, um, well, okay, at the time Britain was at war with France and Napoleon. Um, it's usually a safe bet, yeah. So um, I think the British Royal Navy was press gagging or um, American oh, yeah. sailors into... Um, into the Royal Navy, so that's why I think America declared war against Britain. Yes, yes, it's vaguely coming back to me now. Yeah, the Napoleonic Wars ended in 1815, and I do remember hearing about this sort of reading somewhere, I can't remember where, about this sort of press ganging of Americans and so on. So, uh, yeah, for sure. I mean, that's, uh, that's very important. Um, but, uh, again, this may sound a little cynical, and I sort of don't mean it that way, but in the sort of larger scope of history, despite the fact that there was uh, some great philosophy behind the American Revolution, uh, to me, it's like a bunch of uh, ranchers fighting over a herd of cattle, right? I mean, uh, the ranchers, whoever wins, the cattle ain't going to win, right? And that seems to me, when you look at the American experiments and what shook out of it, which was freedom, uh, some, some uh, increase in freedom uh, for uh, certain middle-class uh, white people, um, I would not say that uh, there was an enormous amount of freedom, except, of course, there was greater freedom for the people who, who immigrated in the 19th century to America, right? It's one of the things that caused a great weakening in Europe was the fact, that, Eastern Europe in particular, was the fact that people could sort of flee to, uh, to America. And so yeah, it was obviously more free than many other places in the world uh, and, a, you know, a very fascinating step forward. But, you know, it's not to, not to be forgotten that it wasn't 70 years later until you know, 2% of the American population got slaughtered you know, by the hundreds of thousands in a war um, about the exactly, uh, well, far greater taxation than had ever been imposed by the British, which was the taxation that was being imposed by Lincoln. So, uh, yeah, I would say that uh, uh, libertarian war is a, I, I know where people are coming from, but there's, it's just important not to look at the words, but to look at the actual deeds, right? And they certainly kept um, the property out of the Constitution, and it wasn't long before the amendments came in to allow increases in taxation and the government control of currency. Uh, it was 100 years then the government began to control the schools, and it was another 120 years until the government had complete control of the educational system and the currency system, and, and then began, uh, well, as it always had, but really began in the sort of Wilsonian crossing of the Rubicon to begin to meddle in uh, overseas wars. And so it was a massive failure. I mean, it, insofar as the liberties that were established by the American Revolution did not last nearly as long as the liberties established by the Roman uh, experiment, right? So uh, it definitely was a step forward in that it had some great language behind it. But, you know, one day we'll have a revolution which is more in the mind and in the personality than it is in the rhetoric and in the politics. And uh, then I think we will take a real step forward and bring everyone with us. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. All right. Well, I will. Uh, I don't want to drag uh, this show on if people are. Uh, I know it's been a, a little bit of a, uh, a dark topic, and I certainly uh, appreciate that. Uh, um, it's uh, getting colder up here in Canada. Maybe that's got something to do with it, this Ibsenian, or this Ibsenian kind of approach. But uh, I'm certainly willing to, to entertain questions or anything like that. If people have anything else that they wanted to, uh, to ask or offer, uh, feel free to do so. Uh, go ahead. All right. Well, thank you so much uh, for uh, listening. I really, really uh, appreciate it. I'm sorry that uh, it was a little dark, but uh, hey, you go where the, uh, where the soul strikes, right? So thank you so much for listening. Uh, have a great week, everyone. Um, 
I'll, I'll try and do a peppy podcast <laughs> early in the week, maybe from New York. Uh, and thanks so much. I'll talk to everyone soon.